Hey, everybody. Before we start, I have an announcement. Undone will not be coming back for a second season. Making this first season of the show has been awesome, and we've loved seeing how the stories resonated with you. So this was not an easy decision to make, and we only came to it after a lot of thought and discussion. The gist of it is that as we got into the first season, it became clear that we didn't have everything the show needed to keep growing and experimenting and finding its way. Not right now, at least. Gimlet is a startup, and we're growing fast. Some things we try are going to continue for a long time, and some things won't. Before we start this last episode, let me just say thank you all for listening. I also want to thank Retro Report, the documentary film series that revisits big moments from the news, who we worked with in coming up with the idea for the show. Thanks also to Gimlet, and most of all, to our amazing team. We're so proud of what Undone has accomplished this season, and we're excited to bring you new stories and other projects down the line. Okay, on to our story this week. Just a quick note, this episode has some swear words and some graphic content, so if you're around people who should not hear that kind of stuff, plug in your headphones or wait till they've gone to bed. From Gimlet Media, this is Undone. I'm Pat Walters. In January of 2003, a space shuttle mission called STS-107 launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida with seven astronauts on board. This is Laurel Clark, one of the astronauts, on a video call back to her family. Dad, want to talk to us? Why don't you ask her what what she felt in, in space? That's Laurel's husband, John, and you can also hear their son, Ian, on these calls. He was eight years old then. Laurel and the crew were up there on a science mission, doing all kinds of different experiments. Some of them were serious, like studying cancer cells, but John says a lot of them were also just neat space stuff, like making videos for kids back on Earth of what fire looks like in space. Here's John. A flame on Earth, you know, has a yellow part and a blue part, and it goes up in space. It doesn't do that. It forms a ball, and it's totally blue. It's the coolest thing ever. This was Laurel's first mission. She'd been training for it for more than six years. And the day before heading home, Laurel sent an email back to her family and friends. She wrote, quote, I have seen some incredible sights. Lightning spreading over the Pacific, the aurora australis lighting up the entire visible horizon, the crescent moon setting over the limb of the Earth. It is glorious. Even the stars have a special brightness. The next morning, the shuttle headed back toward Earth. Here's John again. The shuttle's going to come, it's planned to land a little bit after 9 a.m. Eastern time, Saturday morning. Uh, So, you know, you get up, have breakfast, everybody goes to the shuttle landing strip, and that's where they're going to land. The landing strip is basically a really long runway. And standing beside it are John and Ian and the families of the other astronauts. They have a bunch of bleachers like a high school football stadium. It's a beautiful, clear day. Perfect for landing. So, um... I'm in a weird position because I've done this before. The thing is, John works for NASA as a flight doctor, which means he's been to other shuttle landings on call in case anything goes wrong. So for me, it's like, yeah, no big deal. I mean, I've done this 10 times. So John knew the drill. And as he's waiting, he's listening to this loudspeaker NASA has set up to play the radio communication between the shuttle and mission control. Our crosswind right now is on the left, on the left, on the 3-3 end. And for a while, everything is totally normal. 
until all of a sudden... Columbia Houston UHF comm check. The shuttle side of the communication goes out. Columbia Houston comm check. And then what I saw was there's astronauts, they call them family escorts. All their phones go off at the same time. And you just see their face, this kind of ashen white, oh shit. The space shuttle Columbia had broken apart on reentry, and all seven astronauts on board had died. Rick Husband, William McCool, Michael Anderson, Kupna Chavla, David Brown, Elan Ramon, and John's wife, Laurel Clark. The accident was devastating for John, and the fact that he worked for NASA made it all the more challenging for him to navigate. In the aftermath of the disaster, John felt himself caught between these two competing impulses. As a husband who just lost his wife, all John wanted to do was run away from anything related to NASA and spaceflight. But as a NASA guy, he also felt a pull to help find out what happened and to see if he could do anything to make spaceflight safer for other astronauts. This is the story of what he did. Okay, first, a little backstory on John and Laurel. Before they worked at NASA, they were in the Navy together. That's actually where they met. They were both doctors and both interested in extreme environments. And in 1989, they ended up in dive school together. And this is military diving, which is a whole different ballgame and very arduous. They did these things called harassment dives, where the instructors would send the students underwater, blindfold them, and then cut off their air to see if they could troubleshoot the situation. Super intense stuff. Laurel was the only woman that made it all the way through the training. The guys were always like, oh, you know, we're tough. And she would always swim faster than us. She was just, you know, tenacious. That's how come she was so... uh, you know, revered. John especially revered her. And at a certain point, he started flirting with Laurel at morning roll call. You have to lay your gear out in very precise order. I mean, exactly the right way. Like line up your life vest, your fins, your face mask. And so uh, Laurel was next to me and I turned her knife backwards. And the instructors would come along and they would see it. They would just go crazy and they would kick all the gear in the water and, you know, scream and yell at them and everything. And they never did figure out what was the deal there. And, and I did that enough times that she and her dive buddy got the got in trouble, and she never figured it out. <laughs> Eventually, they fell in love and got married. In 1991, Laurel decided she wanted to become an astronaut. And that came about in kind of an eerie way. John had gotten invited to be a part of a NASA training exercise in Florida, and Laurel decided to tag along. And they have a shuttle, huge shuttle mock-up they put out in the swamp. The exercise was a simulated shuttle crash, and John was part of the crew of doctors training to respond to it. Laurel was watching when, at one point, one of the NASA people running the training was like, Hey, we don't have enough casualties. There were a bunch of people pretending to be injured astronauts in this simulated shuttle crash, but they needed one more person. So Laurel spoke up. She goes, Hey, I'll volunteer. So she gets in this suit and the shuttle, and they have this simulated crash, and we go and rescue her and pull her out and put her on the helicopter and take her to one of the hospitals that had a hyperbaric chamber because that was her casualty, was decompression sickness. 
which is one of the things that would kill her in the shuttle accident 11 years later. So afterwards, this is no shit. She goes, I want to do this. That's where she got the goal to go do an astronaut stuff. And even though this might sound weird to you or me, it made a certain kind of sense to John. By this point, both of them had made their careers out of serving the country in really risky jobs. Laurel had worked on a submarine. John had been a flight surgeon in Desert Storm. Laurel applied to NASA in 1994, but she was pregnant with Ian at the time, and she didn't get in. So she applied again, made it, and in 1996, she started training for space. I don't know if there's a little anecdote or anything that you remember that kind of gives it, would give somebody a sense of what she was like. Um, oh, well, there's a lot of things, um, an anecdote or two. Um, this is Tracy Caldwell Dyson, a NASA astronaut who joined the program shortly after Laurel. I, I don't think I've ever really known Laurel without a smile on her face. And she always had these fantastic earrings. If it was Christmas, she'd have uh, snowmen hanging from her ears, you know, where it was just enough for me to, you know, get my hair combed for the day. Laurel went the extra step to make sure that she had earrings on it. <laughs> that was kind of noteworthy. As Laurel was settling into her training, John transferred to NASA to be a doctor there and started studying the medical risks of spaceflight. John had worked on accident prevention in the Navy, and when he started doing it for NASA, what he found kind of shocked him. The analysis that I did was that basically our loss rate permission cycle was equivalent to World War II daylight bombing crew, you know, B-17s and B-24s flying Europe. Back in World War II, John says, one out of every hundred of these bombing missions ended in the death of the crew. And when it came to the shuttle program, the rate was the same. NASA had only lost one shuttle, the Challenger, in 1986. But by the late 1990s, they'd also only flown about 100 missions. Meaning, according to John, going up in the shuttle was as dangerous as going to war. And so when Laurel got assigned her mission, John told her this. But he says it didn't really face her. Well, I mean, it, it kind of was on deaf ears, you know, because it was like I would go anyway. And to Laurel's astronaut friend Tracy, this reaction made sense. There was this quote that Laurel said before, and that was, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what a ship is for. She knew the risks really well of what she was doing and what, what we do in this business, but she knew that what we gain from it is so much more important. When you listen to the calls between Laurel and her family when she's up in space, what stands out the most is how mundane they are. It's just like Laurel is doing her job, which happens to be in space. These calls sound like the kind any family would have when mom is away on a work trip. That uh, food we got off the cruise ship probably wasn't the best deal. They talk about how John and Ian got food poisoning, and they make plans for when Laurel gets back. Yeah, I'll be back in a week, and, uh, you know, da, da, I mean, you know, I mean, and, I, and quite honestly, I was the same way. I mean, when I, I wasn't prepared for the, her not to come back. Over and out. Houston. Over and out. Bye. 
My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. When communication with the shuttle broke off, John and Ian and the other families of the astronauts who were out at the runway got rushed over to this NASA facility, and the head of the astronaut office walked into the room. And he calls everybody together, and he goes, the shuttle broke up at a high altitude, and we don't think it's survivable. And then all of a sudden, there was this wailing, crying. The kids were screaming. All the family members are crying and hugging each other. It was horrible. I can still remember this blood-curdling, you know, screams from the kids. It was horrible. It was like the, it was like the most horrific sound you could ever imagine. John remembers that night, NASA put him and Ian on a plane back home to Texas. And we're flying back to Houston. I remember Ian wants to play cards, or like go fish or something. I can't remember, some kid card game. And he's kicking my butt because I'm just like, somebody just took my brain and cut it in half. All John could think about was running away. I'm going to get our dog, Addie, get as much cash as we can from the ATM, and we are going to go and nobody will ever see us again. But he didn't have a chance. When he landed, some other astronauts grabbed him and took him over to one of their houses and got him really drunk. And by the time he sobered up, running away didn't really feel like an option anymore. John says that first week he was home, his house was full of people. All of Laurel's friends, all of my friends, family, it was an absolute zoo. People are drinking and crying and talking and showing pictures, and I'm just like the zombie that they're just leading around with on a leash. You just go here, you just go do this. And then after a while I go, this is awful, I can't take this anymore, you know? So I went to work. But remember, John worked at NASA, and in the wake of the accident, all anybody at NASA was talking about and working on was the Columbia. And suddenly, the thing John had wanted to run away from was all around him. This episode of Undone is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace gives you a powerful all-in-one platform with access to unique domains and easy-to-use templates to build a beautiful website, portfolio, or online store. So, it's 2017. We made it. And I thought it'd be a good time to ask some of my Gimlet colleagues if they have any particular New Year's resolutions in mind. My biggest goal this year is I want to take my first formal trip to Korea, which is where my parents are from. I want to find a way to build writing fiction into my schedule. I want to learn more about electricity. It just seems mysterious to me, and it's not mysterious. It's actually, like, very scientific. I want to eat more vegetables. I want to become stronger. Uh, Basically, I've had the same resolution since I was a kid and I'm in my mid-30s, which is to clean my room. Whether it's to launch a creative project, to chronicle travel adventures, or to share facts you learn about the mysteries of electricity, Squarespace can help you make your next move. Cleaning your room, though, you're on your own for that. To get started with Squarespace, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code UNDONE to get 10% off your first purchase and to show support for the show. That's squarespace.com, offer code UNDONE. This episode of Undone is brought to you by Blue Apron. 
For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients. With Blue Apron, you can also expand your culinary knowledge. You might end up preparing foods you've never cooked before. So to test the culinary knowledge of some of my Gimlet colleagues, I'm bringing them in to make them do a pasta naming quiz. There's a bunch of different kinds of pasta in front of you. You'll have 30 seconds to name as many of them as you can. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one, go. Bowtie. Yes. Uh, ziti. Yes. Rigatoni. Yes. Linguini. Wrong. That's spaghetti. Nope. Uh, Capellini. No. This just looks so much like linguini. Oh, it's hollow in the middle. Fettuccine. No, that's not fettuccine. It's tubular. I don't know what that is. <sighs> so close. Are you sure this isn't spaghetti? <laughs> the hollow spaghetti-like pasta that stumped everyone? Its name actually comes from buco, which is Italian for whole. Long hole pasta. Long hole pasta, basically, <laughs> I think. So that one's bucatini. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have ever gotten that. On this week's Blue Apron menu, spicy shrimp and bucatini pasta. Right now, you can get your first three meals free, along with free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash undone. That's blueapron.com slash undone. When the Columbia Space Shuttle broke apart on reentry in 2003... Debris fell across an area of Texas and Louisiana, hundreds of miles across. In the weeks after the accident, thousands of volunteers assembled to gather up as much of it as they could so NASA could piece it back together and study what happened. A few weeks after the accident, John and some of the other family members went down to see them. And so I went out with them and just basically said, hey, thanks, you know. You guys are really doing something important. What you're getting choked up, what felt so important well, about that? Well, I mean, that? you know, I mean, this is hard to do. And, you know, people think, all oh, this, you know, all this stuff got burned up. No, there were, like, body parts. You know, not fragmented body parts, like big pieces, heads, legs, torsos. And you went out and spent, you spent yeah, a bunch a of time. a lot of time just thanking them for what they were doing. Eventually, NASA pieced together a lot of this debris and determined what went wrong. When the shuttle launched, a piece of foam had snapped off the fuel tank and punched a hole in the left wing. And as the shuttle re-entered the atmosphere, hot gases poured into the hole and tore the wing apart. At this point, John wasn't involved in the investigation. But then one day, he got a call from a friend on the investigation team. He calls me up and he goes, NASA doesn't want anything in there about what happened to the crew. You know, the primary focus is what happened to the vehicle. And they're very different. So what did they do? How did they respond? And how did they perish? So I wrote the head of the Columbia board and said the families want that done. The initial report NASA released about the accident had a one-page summary of what happened to the crew. But John felt strongly that that wasn't enough, that a detailed investigation into how the crew died could help make things safer for other astronauts in the future. And what John eventually realized is that he was kind of the perfect guy to work on this. He was a flight doctor and a NASA guy, and he'd investigated accidents before when he was in the Navy. So in 2004, John and a team of people started studying how the Columbia crew died. I mean, everybody has a different way. Some people just grieve and grieve and grieve, and for me it's like, you know... If I can't run off the grid, now I'm going to have to help them to figure out what happened. They examined the flight data recorder, studied debris from the cockpit, and reviewed the astronauts' autopsy reports, which included graphic photos of their bodies after the crash. 
Did anybody stop you and say like, John, maybe this isn't a good idea? Like, oh yeah, sure, absolutely, and 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 for good reason. Trust me, this was not an easy thing. But you say, look, you know, we have to do this that others may live, and so you just have to, you have to um, deal with it. John said that line that others may live a few times during our interview. It's the motto of the Air Force pararescue men. And talking to John about this decision, you do get the sense he felt a duty to help, to study what happened to Laurel in order to make spaceflight safer for other astronauts. NASA still had astronauts up in space at the International Space Station at the time, and they needed to send more shuttle missions up to give these astronauts supplies. And beyond that immediate need, John just believed really deeply in space exploration. He had even applied to be an astronaut himself, but didn't get in. For me, it, it's, it's doing it, but with a sense of purpose and a, and a goal. And a, and a, I, w- I would feel more distraught by knowing that their sacrifice did not make a difference, that didn't matter. We didn't learn from it. So that's what, you know, kept me going. The investigation ended up taking years. And in 2008, John's team published their results. They describe in meticulous detail the crew's final moments. After NASA lost radio communication with the shuttle, the crew was alive and conscious for nearly a minute. They tried a bunch of different things to regain control of the shuttle, not knowing it was too late. And after that, a series of horrible things happened. Their bodies experienced severe burns, got thrown around in the cockpit, and their blood boiled from the pressure of space. But they weren't suffering because they were unconscious. John says finding out this last detail gave some solace to the family members, including him. Did that process provide any kind of closure? Did you feel like that it was? Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't about, like, you know, mission accomplished closure. It was like, here's what we learned from it, and here's where we go forward. Because of these investigations that John participated in, NASA made a lot of changes to the space program to make it safer. They improved crew training, modified the spacesuits, and strengthened the seat restraints. The investigations also changed the culture at NASA. They became a reminder of how dangerous spaceflight is. And in the years after the Columbia accident, NASA wound down the shuttle program. But as that was happening, private companies were getting into space exploration in a big way. And John was about to find himself at the center of that. In 2012, John got a call from one of these private sector space explorers. His name was Alan Eustace. He's an engineer who used to be an exec at Google, but he's also a longtime pilot and skydiver. And he had this idea to skydive from the stratosphere. Not quite space, but almost. Some of you might remember that Red Bull guy, Felix Baumgartner, who did something similar around this same time. Alan's project was different from that one because it wasn't just about skydiving from near space. It was about building a new kind of spacesuit that could keep you alive for hours up there. Here's Alan. You know, I was intrigued on whether you could create a self-contained system uh, to survive in the stratosphere, much like scuba diving has allowed you to survive underneath the water. And so it was a problem that grabbed me more than anything else. And that problem was also one of the big ones that Laurel and the Columbia crew faced back in 2003 when the space shuttle broke apart on reentry. Because when the accident happened, the Columbia was also in the stratosphere. And the suits the astronauts were wearing would not have protected them, even if they'd been able to get out of the space shuttle. When Alan took on this challenge, only one person had survived a fall from that high up. A guy named Joe Kittinger had done it in the 60s. 
the Red Bull guy would become the second in 2012. But both of those guys were experienced skydivers, and they'd still both nearly died doing it. Alan wanted to make a suit that was so simple that anybody could use it, and so simple, in fact, that it would get you back alive even if something went wrong and you couldn't operate the suit yourself. We had to be able to get an unconscious person to the Earth safely. And in order to pull this off, he needed a doctor to join the team. You know, we asked, you know, who's the person most qualified, you know, in the world? And, uh, you know, that was universal. Everybody said that the right person was John Clark. John's research into what happened to the Columbia astronauts had turned him into one of the world's experts on what happens to the human body when it comes back from space. He'd become the go-to guy for private space explorers interested in getting up there and getting back safely. By the time Alan called him, John was actually working on that Red Bull project, and he'd started talking to a few private space travel companies. So John joined Alan's team, and one of the first things he did was give Alan this presentation about risk. The same talk he had given Laurel before she decided to go to space, but with the Columbia accident added to it. If you go through it, you'll probably run the other direction. It's called Survival at the Fringe of Space. And Alan says it's basically... The history of all high-altitude failures to date, all the people that had died and why they had died or why they were injured. He had videos of some of it happening. Anyway, yes, he had one of the most frightening presentations I've ever seen. But Alan was determined to go. He and his team, now including John, spent years building this suit. They put in precautions in case there's a leak, designed a special parachute to prevent spinning, which can be deadly, and made it so you could stay alive in the suit for hours. On October 24th, 2014, Alan hitched himself to a giant balloon and began his two-hour-long float up to 135,000 feet four times higher than commercial airplanes fly, and almost exactly the altitude of the Columbia accident. You know, it's almost like the world's receding. Pebbles become boulders, become cars, become buildings, become cities, become states. The sky, you know, starts out as blue, and then it gets darker and darker, and eventually it becomes completely black. The atmosphere, you think, is kind of this gradual change from you know, light to dark, but it's not. It's got these all these beautiful, delicate layers. Listening to Alan describe this scene kind of makes you think of that email Laurel sent back to her family from space. There's this awe at seeing the world from this vantage point, seeing how small it is in the vastness of space. Eventually, he reaches 135,000 feet, and for a moment, he's suspended there, sitting on the edge of space, protected from this totally hostile environment, by this suit that John Clark helped him build. And then... Five, four, three, two, one, and I'm released. You know, I start to fall, and because there's no atmosphere, or very little atmosphere at that point, um, uh, there's no noise. And eventually, at 51 seconds, I'm going 822 miles an hour past the speed of sound, and... uh, at that point, the atmosphere is thick enough and I'm falling fast enough that I start to hear the sound of the wind slowing me down. Less than five minutes after Alan detached from the balloon in the stratosphere, he pulls his ripcord. And 10 minutes after that, he lands. And John Clark was there waiting for him. You know, we were ready, but nothing, nothing bad happened. In fact, his jump was unbelievably stable. Were you thinking about Laurel at all that day? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, you know, um, I, I, I kept remembering that saying that others may live. And I was saying a kind of a prayer that basically acknowledged Laurel's sacrifice that, hey, babe, you know, we did it right this time. And the next time, you know, somebody goes to space and has a problem like you had, they have a fighting chance at survival. It was awesome. You can hear it in John's voice when he talks about this stuff. He really does just think space exploration is awesome. That's not true of everybody Laurel left behind. Her son Ian has no interest in spaceflight. It took his mom from him, after all. And John gets that. After Laurel died, John says he stopped taking as many risks, worried about leaving Ian with no parents. He gave up flying small airplanes, for instance. But Ian is grown up now. And even though John probably knows more about the dangers of spaceflight than just about anyone else on Earth, he says if he got the chance, he'd go. Shoot, yeah. I don't care how risky it is. I don't care if it's a guarantee that I would die, I would still do it. I'd go to Mars tomorrow. Undone is hosted and produced by me, Pat Walters, with Julia DeWitt and Emmanuel Perry. Our senior producer is Larissa Anderson. We are edited by Alan Burdick and Caitlin Kenny. Production assistance by Isabella Kulkarni. Undone is mixed and scored by Bobby Lord. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Jana Levin. Undone was conceived in collaboration with our friends at Retro Report, the documentary film series that connects iconic news events of the past to today. You can find them at retroreport.org. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Undone Show or email us at undone at gimletmedia.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is an easy way to create a beautiful website, portfolio, or online store. They feature professional-looking templates and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code UNDONE at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com, offer code UNDONE. Thanks to our sponsor, Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create a home-cooked meal. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash undone. That's blueapron.com slash undone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.